Good day to you, Rising Man family. This is First Nature Episode 5 on the Rising Man Podcast with me, your host, Sean Barry. Today, we're going to be talking about rites of passage, nature connection, and climate change. something that I've been thinking about the last weeks. I'm looking at it as sort of like a trilogy, a triangle, creating a location that we are in the middle of. And how do these three aspects of our humanity or the awareness that we have as humans informed and developed us into the human that we are today, the species that we are, and the way that we are performing, acting upon the face of this planet. So hang on for the drop into that conversation. But first, before we do that, I just want to remind all the men out there, we're living in some interesting times. We can look back in history and see that history is full of interesting times, but this is our time and it's become quite interesting, especially just over the last, you know, half decade here. What does it mean to be a man is becoming a more and more important question to be asking ourselves and there's not a lot of um, you know there's not a lot of obvious clear solutions about how to become that man that you envision for yourself you know what are your values how do you determine the values that make you a man how do you act in the world and create the world around you that reflects the passion and the vision and what you have to offer to the world as the man that you are so if you are on that journey of discovering how to do all that, I really want to encourage you, invite you to head on over to risingman.org and check out the programs tab. You'll find a set of programs there that are designed specifically for men to find solutions and resources to help you get in touch and create the life of the man that you want to be. And these programs are done within the circle of other men. You know, this isn't just some online curriculum you download off the web and then work through it by yourself in a vacuum, you know, at a cafe or, you know, in the privacy of your home. All these programs have a group of men that have all signed up to do it together. And so you become part of a small community, get to experience brotherhood and also get the support and learning that comes from watching other men take on challenges and hearing about their successes, their failures, their fears, all the things that make us fully human and to, you know, what does it take to actually fully realize ourselves and to understand what our gifts are and to take on the task of bringing those gifts to the world around us, to, you know, to ourselves, to give our gifts to ourselves, to give our, our gift to our families and our loved ones and our friends and to our greater communities, being of service and doing our part to, to make the world a better place. You know, because when we do that, when we make the world a better place, then it's also a better place for us and it lifts everyone up. What a great way to live your life. So head on over to risingman.org and, and check it out. Okay, let's drop in. Rites of passage, nature connection, and climate change. So first, I like to start with definitions because so much of our reality is created through the words we speak and the words we write and the words we hear and the words we read. There's so many, many words that have multiple meanings or different shades of meaning to different people. So when it comes to like specific terms like these, I like to just kind of put a common definition out there so we all kind of know what we're working with in the conversation. So first up, rites of passage. So a rite of passage is a ritual death and rebirth. It's letting go of the identity that one sees themselves as and as they are seen by their immediate community and reinventing, re-envisioning themselves into a new identity that they embrace and act out and behave into the world in a new way. And it's a different paradigm they're operating in and also their immediate community will choose to support and encourage that new paradigm, that new person, and welcome them into the community. A rite of passage has three components, a time of severance, a time of thresholds, and a time of incorporation, right? Severance is a time where you're taking stock, you're, you're looking at, the, at defining and understanding who you are currently or who you've been, right? Just getting clear on what identity 
is going to, you know, quote unquote, die ritually. Threshold is the time where the ritual death and the rebirth happens. It's kind of the, the deep ceremony of that process. Typically, it involves some kind of ordeal, some kind of physical, you know, endurance test. A lot of rites of passages around the world include some kind of solo time, you know, usually out in nature, usually some kind of fasting where you're not eating food, sometimes not drinking water. It could involve ritual scarring. Sometimes there's genital mutilation or getting your tooth knocked out. All kinds of different ways that threshold time is created. And basically it's, it's, you know, it's an induced trauma, controlled induced trauma. And what it does, it's it's basically uh, creating a, a rift in the psyche to allow them to separate from their current identity and create a space where they can embrace fully into the new identity that they are creating for themselves, or in some cases has been created for them to step into. And finally, there's incorporation. It's often said that incorporation is the third and most difficult part of a rite of passage. Incorporation is a lifelong journey. It's, it's literally in the word itself, incorporate. So it's embodying, it's acting and moving through the world on the premise of this new identity. And in more intact cultures, it's maybe a little easier because there's a lot of community support. When initiates are coming out of a rite of passage, other communities ready to embrace and support that new identity and to give them opportunities to you know, express it and develop it further and deeper over their life's journey. But that being said, it's still challenging for the individual because of that, that residual memory of who they were and all their behaviors and patterns and ways of being, they're still there. You know, It's not like they're brainwashed. It's not that they've forgotten the way that they were. A lot of times, you know, stepping into the new identity, there's a lot of challenge, there's a lot of fear. There's usually some kind of apprenticeship or journeyman's process to fully develop into that new identity. It usually includes some kind of role that you're holding in a community that's very visible and makes a contribution to the community. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot of responsibility. And there's privileges that come with that too. But in essence, um, the biggest challenge is, you know, not not uh, backsliding, to use a, a common term with, you know, spiritual work into the former self. I'm sure pretty much all of us can identify with you know that happening somewhere in our lives where we've you know just had issues in a relationship or we've taken on challenges with our health and and diets and trying to improve ourselves or whatever that looks like where there's an, a certain behavior or pattern that's very very much in place and our default way of being and we make a declaration uh, we're inspired you know, want to sort of put ourselves into a different position that requires making these changes. And so we go for it. And a lot of times it's really hard to shake that old behavior. You know, when the going gets rough, when challenges come up that we don't know quite how to address in that new way, the way we kind of move into it then is reverting back to those old behaviors, those old patterns. You know, we see it as a failure, it's a setback, and that new self doesn't get a, a good foothold to develop into its fullness. So yeah, incorporation, it requires support. It requires people around us. We have to have other people who are rooting for us and seeing us as that new way and holding us accountable to that new way that we've declared that we are going to be. It's not a lifelong journey. It's, there's, it's yeah, just like anything in life. It's, it's not a destination. We don't arrive and then just to kick back and, and be there. It's something we're always trying to improve upon and solidify deeper into our daily way that we show up. And it never ends. So that's the three parts of a rite of passage. Earlier and a moment ago, I said that it was a ceremony. And that's a very specific word too. So I do want to just kind of put a definition in there about what a ceremony is. You know, there's lots of different definitions. If you look up that word, different ways of saying it. But the one that I like the most, that I think is actually pretty accurate and pretty specific, goes something like this. Uh, a ceremony is a sincere, authentic, physical demonstration symbolizing the results of a compelling conscious internal process that transforms one's understanding of themselves, compelling them to perceive, interact with, and experience their reality of the world in a novel and unique way. So yeah, a bit of a mouthful there, but I think it's important to, to see, you know, a ceremony is a transformative experience. And to say it in a different way, it's, you know, we go through times where something internally changes within us, a new perspective, a new awareness, a new feeling, something takes hold in us inside that changes the way we see the world outside. 
So the act of physicalizing externally demonstrating, you know, outside of ourselves that there's an internal change that has happened is a, is a really great and powerful way, not only for us to experience the reality of it, because now it's in the real physical world, but also uh, shows it to others. Other people can witness that physical demonstration. And depending on the scenario that is happening in, they can be translated or interpreted, you know, and so that people understand what they're seeing and have an opportunity to step in and support that demonstration this person is making about who they are now and how they will perceive the world going forward. All right, so got rites of passage and ceremony out of the way. Next up is nature connection, and that's a term we've been hearing more and more of, which is, in my opinion, great. Can't talk about nature connection too much. To sign up for a nature connection program and to say that you're you know, going to go get some nature connection is to imply that you are, at the present moment, nature disconnected. Right, as a subconscious, you know, again, we're talking about words, right? So, saying nature connection is a thing that we need to go and get automatically implies that we don't have it presently. And the truth is that you are never disconnected from nature, that is the truth. So, a better way to say it is we can experience nature disconnection, we can feel disconnected from nature, but the underlying truth is always that we are connected to nature just by the fact that when you take a breath in. You are breathing in, you're taking the atmosphere of a planet into your lungs, into the private, intimate space of your lungs. And your blood is doing this magical, amazing thing where it's letting go of little molecules of carbon dioxide and it's taking in little molecules of oxygen and it's moving it around through your whole body, right? That's the atmosphere literally moving through your body. And when you exhale, all the vegetation, the plants, the trees, the grasses, the food, that's growing out of the ground. They need that CO2 from your lungs. Unless you plan to hold your breath the rest of your life, you're nature connected. We just forget. We just forget. We live in a very modern, technological, fast-moving, busy, fast-paced urban world for the most part, a lot of us. It's really hard to remember just how deeply nature connected we are simply because we are a species of life walking around on this planet. That's it. That's nature connection. We can't escape it. So let me just drop in this definition for nature connection. Let's say that nature connection is reestablishing or remembering the bond between the human experience and all biotic and abiotic expressions of the universe with special focus on manifestations of matter the planets humanity has arisen upon. So in layman's terms, let's just say it's it's using our, our primary senses, our you know, our taste, our touch, our smell, our hearing, our listening, to notice, to re-intake all that is around us. I'm very fond of saying also that you know nothing in the worlds that we have access to, our phones, our cars, our jet planes, our skyrise buildings, our computers, Everything we touch, none of that fell from outer space intact as some foreign objects, right? Everything we interact with is made from nature. Absolutely everything. That cell phone you are semi-addicted to, someone scooped up a handful of dirt and figured out how to turn that into a device that you can talk to anyone in the world with in an instant. It's incredible, really. Technology is this amazing thing. All of our technology is based on resources from the earth. All of it. Even the satellite. Is it Voyager 2, I think, that has gone out far, far beyond our, our entire solar system now? There's a little piece of earth that's you know billions of miles away. So far away, I don't even think we're getting radio transmissions from it anymore. It's so far out in space. But that little thing was made out of earth. It's incredible. So we are never nature disconnected. We just need to find ways to remind ourselves of how connected we always are. All right, our final definition, climate change. This was an interesting one. There's, you know, if you Google definition of climate change, there's lots of definitions out there. This, it's not a new term. That's kind of an interesting thing. That term has been around for a long, long, long time. Really, it's just kind of having a darling renaissance, you know, in this day and age, because it's become such a potent buzzword, something that really is drawing our attention these days. So let me just read the one that I thought was most encompassing of how I perceive, you know, this idea of climate change. So climate change, a change in the state of the climate 
that can be identified using statistical tests by changes in the mean and or the variability of its properties and that persists for an extended period, typically decades or longer. Climate change may be due to natural internal processes or external forcings, such as modulations of the solar cycles, volcanic eruptions, and persistent anthropogenic changes in the composition of the atmosphere or in land use. And then this definition had a little subnote that says, uh, note that the Framework Convention on Climate Change in its Article 1 defines climate change as, quote, a change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of the global atmosphere and which is in addition to natural climate variability observed over comparable time periods. This organization thus makes a distinction between climate change attributable to human activities altering the atmospheric composition and climate variability attributable to natural causes. So just to kind of break that down a little more simply, in essence, climate change happens naturally. Right? We all know that there are ice ages that have come and gone way before humans were around or before humans really had any effects on the climate. So it's safe to say that climate change is nothing new and not specifically uh, due to humans. It's also safe to say in this day and age, this modern age, that climate change is very much due currently to human activity. I'm just uh, listening right now. So Let's just take a little commercial break. I live in a yurt here in Santa Cruz, California. It's 1.13 a.m. I think you can probably hear the rain hitting the roof of the yurt right now. So I'm pretty sure it's going to show up on this recording, and it feels good to just acknowledge that that's part of what's happening. So as professionals, we try to be here at risingman.org. I'm also feeling wonderful that the rain is going to be captured on this audio track and traveling music for us as we continue this conversation. So enjoy it. I certainly am. So let's bring these three pieces into focus here and, and talk about how they interrelate. We know that peoples all over the world, virtually every culture that has risen up on the face of the earth at one time or another had some kind of rite of passage culture in them. It's just something that came up in humans at a certain point. It's, it basically is responsible for creating the identities not only of the individual, but of the actual cultures and the peoples that were calling in those rites of passage, that were creating them, that were enacting them. You know, rites of passages are very much tied to the place on earth. So no matter where you go on the earth, you know, rites of passages are going to look different because the land is different. And especially back in a certain day and age, so many of the roles that were necessary for a, a group of people to take on in order to stay safe, secure, and thriving would be unique to that region. You know, really, a real easy example to make is even just in modern times, right? So let's take a look at someone who lives in Southern California compared to someone who lives in the Great Lakes region, you know, Michigan, right? So that's where I grew up. I grew up in Michigan. And I've spent the majority of my adulthood living in Southern California. So when I was a kid, and even now when I go home to visit family, you know, conserving water is just not a thing back there. Uh, Michigan's surrounded by gigantic freshwater lakes. The state is literally peppered with lakes and rivers all over. It rains in the summer. There's snowpack in the winter. People take long showers, wash their cars whenever they want. They water their lawns, whatever they want. There's just not a value for conserving water. And that's okay. That is completely appropriate for that region. And then looking at Southern California, exactly the opposite. You know, California, for the most part, has been in a severe drought for the last decade or more. And in SoCal especially, water conservation is a thing. Everybody knows about it. It comes up in conversations a lot. There's uh, city mandates around water usage. There's fines. You know, if you're using too much, like if you're watering your lawn in the afternoon at two o'clock, uh, at certain times of the year, at certain times of the drought, drought's been really bad, um, you can get a fine for that. You know, taking shorter showers is a thing. High efficiency uh, washers and dishwashers, you know, people are choosing those. It's amazing how conscious Southern Californians are about water usage. So we can see that different regions have different values. And in, you know, older tribes, tribal peoples who are still living very close to the land, those same values would have shown up in those people's lives and the way that they, you know, pursued their livelihood and thereby their initiations about how they initiated their youth into adulthood would reflect that. Everybody had rites of passages and they looked different all over the world. 
So let's roll in some nature connection conversation with that. Because again, ancient peoples were living very much closer to unprocessed nature. Let's put it that way. We live in a very processed nature world, right? We are very much cocooned in having transformed nature into other things and surrounding ourselves with it. So we live in you know homes that are made from materials that have been processed. We drive vehicles that have been made out of earth that has been processed into other materials. Our devices, our technology, all the ways that we use to communicate and expedite our lifestyles and make them more comfortable and easeful quicker all come from nature that has been uh, made into other things that are unrecognizable to the natural world. Right, so piece of plastic, for instance, that just that's not something you can dig up out of the ground, right? And it takes forever for nature to reclaim that plastic. It could take thousands of years in some cases. Our older ancient ancestors, that was not the case. You know, they had technology too, but their technology was much more simplified. And sure, yes, they did transform Earth into other materials, but you know, not so many layers to it. So, for example, you know, a weaver, someone who took the, you know, the hair from an animal, the fur for an animal, I guess, hair, sheep, what do you call that? And turned it into a blanket, right? There's a certain level of, you know, looking at a, a sheep and looking at a blanket. And if you didn't know anything about that, it, you may not be able to correlate that one came from the other. Right, but really, it's just one step from removal. Nothing's actually inherently changed about the properties of the wool, except for the fact that it's been arranged in a different pattern than when it grows on the animal. Even with the technologies of our ancient ancestors, their technology was still recognizable as nature and very natural. And I imagine that kept them very much close to staying uh, just aware and present to nature in general. For the most part, you know, there were simple dwellings that were made out of grass thatch or clay adobe or, you know, piled rocks or uh, adopted caves. Our fires were very ge- generated from very basic materials, either from friction by, f- by wood, flint, and stone. The way we processed our food by gathering it by hand or hunting the animals and processing the animals into meats and hides and clothing. You know, everyone in the village would have a very keen understanding that nature provided all of the needs and all of the goods that were required for them to, again, be safe, secure, and to thrive and be comfortable. All their skills and livelihoods were somehow related directly to a natural process or going out into nature to gather the resources necessary to use their skills in order to transform that raw nature into a useful product. So for a long, long time, for thousands and thousands and thousands and many thousands of years, um, there was a very direct and correlated relationship between the rites of passages of cultures, uh, relative nature connection to their the regions and the environments that they lived and operated in. So what happens? How did we get into the world we live in now where most of us wouldn't have a clue on how to go out our door and collect raw materials and create the things we needed to survive. And how is it that we are feeling so disconnected from nature? And how is it that our technology has become so powerful and so removed from the natural order of things that has actually altered the ability of our planets to sustain us? I don't have the uh, you know empirical answer. But from my observations, the things I read, um, conversations I've been in, I think it's safe to say that there was a critical point at which our tribes grew into something more sizable, something that we couldn't really call a tribe anymore. More people, more mouths to feed, more clothes to make, more animals that needed to be hunted down, resources that had to be found that were further and further away from the camp. Because, uh, you know, for instance, Uh, for fires, right? If you have a small band or a tribe of people, you can collect the wood in a relatively reasonable area and um, still have enough time to go get the wood, come back, process it, build fires. But as a group of people becomes bigger and bigger, you're going to need, you know, fires burning longer, fires burning bigger, um, more fires in general, because there's just more people in the camp and not everybody can crowd around the one fire anymore. 
more and you're walking further right because you've burned up all the local wood and instead of walking 15 and 20 minutes out to get more wood now you're walking 30 40 minutes out to get wood and pretty soon you're walking an hour out to get wood and now you're running into a problem because you're there's not enough time in the day where you you know might have had enough time to before to uh, make your own food or forage your own food or barter for food with firewood or whatever they did. Now you're you're not even around enough to do that. You're taking these long epic walks just to bring wood back. You're burning more energy. You're burning more calories. Like all the costs of gathering wood to keep the fires burning is going up. So how does the tribe respond? You know, or something that's growing beyond the size of a tribe. Well, I think it was specialization. So just looking at it from a sheer time scale, if you're spending almost twice as much time going to, uh, you know, contribute to your, to make your contribution to the community, to be giving your gift, to be developing and, uh, you know, bringing your skill to bear and you're losing time keeping up your other basic skills, foraging, making your clothes, basic hunting, whatever, someone else would have to do that for you. And then now you've got other people in the community who are spending more time in their primary skill, which is becoming a specialized thing. So let's say the foragers are now foraging on behalf of the fire keepers because the fire keepers don't have time to forage for themselves anymore. So now the foragers are out there more time and they have less time to keep up all their other basic skills. They're not able to repair their clothing as much or make a new pair of moccasins or whatever, harvest uh, thatch for their grass hut for the spring. So that gets farmed out to someone else who does that really well. They have to do that more now too. So all this is happening, specialization is happening and people are losing their general skill base of, of, you know, of uh, becoming a jack of all trades, becoming master of one, and but they're losing that basic broad connection to nature. All the ways that they were out there together, doing all the same things together, providing all the basic uh, needs in the same way together with some skill bases, you know, for instance, like the firekeeper, sure, he's the one who's going to do the best keeping fire, but there is still time and space for him to up, you know, to provide for himself in other ways. And as specialization takes over, that starts to diminish. And pretty soon you've got people, and eventually you have what we have today, you know, the carryover of all of us who are basically spending the majority of our life force and our time specializing in one skill. And all the other aspects of life are being provided for us by other people who are specializing in those things. So sure, some of us still cook our meals. I mean, a lot of us, we cook our meals, but we're not out there harvesting the plants or we're definitely not out there sowing the fields, right? And tending the fields and then harvesting our plants. We're not out there, uh, you know, hunting down the deer or hunting down the boar and processing the, the meat, you know? We're just cooking the food that other people have gone through the trouble to provide for us. So ultimately what we have is, you know, we've gone from sort of a band or a, a base tribal people who shared the, the basic skills of survival which kept them in a very broad connection across many different domains and awarenesses of the intimacy of their lives intertwined with nature to where we are now, where so much of our lives are provided for us while we specialize in, most of us are specializing in some aspect of, you know, relatively high technology. Uh, technology that is sitting on top of layers and layers and layers of interpretation of raw nature. I think we can track the line too of how generationally uh, the disconnection from nature started to increase. You know, as parents specialized and spent less time in nature, um, that was something their kids would observe, right? And and typically, kids kind of grow up in the trade of their parents, at least at that time, up until let's say the industrial revolution. But even today, you know, doctors, kids become doctors, and so forth. You know, there's a there's just a proclivity to carry on the family business, so to speak. And as that technology continues to develop and become more complex and sophisticated, you know, again, the the time that is available to spend just developing uh, a general life skill base uh, continues to diminish. And we require additional 
specialization from other people to provide those other needs for us that we no longer know how to do for ourselves. You know, so each generation that would become like a, a degree of separation that would move us farther away from that broad general categorical sense of we are nature connected beings into we are specialized beings who have lost our connection to nature through our technological pursuits. And our technological pursuits is what gives us a sense of safety, of security, of comfort, ease, and expedient results. So let's flash forward to today and climate change, particularly the climate change that hasn't been induced by human activity. And the human activity is primarily technology-driven. And all the technologies we have today are very, very specialized um, no one in the chain of technology uh, is taking the raw material of nature all the way through to its final products. That scope is too sophisticated, too complex, too labor-intensive. Uh, that's why we have specialization, because people get really good at doing one specific thing. It's this interesting human uh, attribute that we've really exploited in order to create the modern convenience world that we, uh, we are all participating in. So here we are today, a species of specialization and, and the cost of that on the environment that none of us are really able to fully comprehend the cost of our specialization in order to enjoy the humanity that we have created for ourselves. We could say that specialization is, is, a, is a myopic pursuit and that's not a positive or negative connotation is just to assert that uh, specialization means you're paying attention to pretty much one thing and nothing else. And as a behavior that we have adapted very strongly to, it also means that our, 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 our capacity to observe the greater world around us has also become myopic. And as a result, uh, as a species, we've just lost sight of the big picture. We've lost sight of ourselves as part of nature, as, as part of this planet. We literally are part of this planet. Our bodies are made out of this planet. And through our specialization, we've lost touch with that. We don't see the relationship between you know, the resources and the energy that it takes to convert the raw materials of Earth into all these conveniences we've made. And, and here we are. You know, where the climate is responding to that in not a very favorable way for us. And what's happened to our rites of passages? So many, many cultures have lost their rite of passage, or they're just a shell of what they once meant or represented. Most of us don't even belong to a cohesive uh, community that's holding a common set of values and is connected in all those generalized ways that brought us in close connection, that brought each of us as individuals into close connection with nature. Uh, we're all specialized and we're all in our private separate cars, in our private separate homes. And we're, we're just not participating as a communal species anymore, really. At least not relative to the way that we used to for literally tens of thousands of years. So many of us feel separate from ourselves. We feel separate from the people around us. We feel separate from nature. And most of our technologies are uh, reinforcing that separateness. You know, we're living in our devices. We're living virtually. And this past year and a half with the pandemic now has really just brought us all into uh, most of our, a lot of our work and communication being done on you know video calls instead of in person. So yeah, folks, we're uh, we're kind of in a special hole, and the outlook is uh, you know bleaker than any time ever before in our modern history. It's really easy to uh, let that overwhelm us and to get us down and to mourn and grieve. Um, what we once all shared together in our respective places in the world. And it's easy to uh, just turn a blind eye, to put our heads in the sand, to dive back into our conveniences and our entertainment and our uh, pursuits of success 
and um, and just hope that the other folks will figure it out for us, because that's what specialization has taught us, is that someone else will handle it because I'm too busy doing this one thing. But I think uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're you know getting engaged more in personal work and paying attention to what's happening out in the world. I think we all know that that is not the way through our circumstance. So what is the way through then? How do we as a species, how do we as um, communities and individuals return to more of a harmonious living with all the other systems and species on this planet? I think uh, all of us want to see that all of us are missing something you know no one wants to walk around with this doom and gloom of you know humans wrecked it humans blew it and um and i know i know that i don't so let's just talk about some simple basic things that we can be doing every day like these are things we can do every day and yeah no one of us is going to change the course of that we're on currently, according to all the science. Um, but what we can do is bring our attention back to what we had so many years ago that produced a more harmonious and connected experience of life as humans on this planet. And that really is so simple. The message is so simple every time. It's, it's getting back in touch with nature. It's remembering your nature connection. It's embracing your na- nature connection. It's um, practicing your nature connection. You know, it's prioritizing it. It's spending time, taking time away from your specialization and putting it back into being a generally nature-connected human on this planet, the way that we all were at one point or another in our ancestry. Again, all of our ancestors, your ancestors, my ancestors, at some point in your bloodline, your people were completely nature-connected, living off the land, living in harmony with the land, um, participating in the natural cycles, um, honoring the ebb and flow of resources and their value, and finding the joy and gratitude and fulfillment of that kind of living. And I'm not saying we have to all go back to living in caves and scrounging around for nuts and uh, berries. Maybe, Uh, but probably not. We're probably not all going to do that. There's probably not enough caves for 8 billion people. But what we can do is we can review our values. We can review our standards. We can look deeply into our philosophies of how we perceive life and, and, and question them. We can look deeply into the way that we live our lives, the patterns we have, the behaviors, the choices we make, how we spend our money, what we spend our time on, uh, the products we consume, the way we consume them, uh, where our products come from. All that is up for review. That's something we have total and complete control over. And we can begin to make different choices. We can begin to make choices that slowly move us away from this specialized lifestyle and more back into this general connection to all things and appreciation of the value and energy and um, what it takes to actually live you know these lifestyles that in general we we kind of take for granted I mean I know I do you know and and begin to return our individual sort of closeted singular lifestyles back to a general communal experience to be reaching out to our neighbors, reaching out to our families. I mean, there's so many people I know who just are not having regular good communication with their family members or don't are really, you know, under, I don't have the skills or the self-leadership to be building a strong community around themselves with people they trust and have uh, influence with and have, uh, you know, influential impact from other people upon themselves. Now, that's what builds strong communities is the people interacting. And if we're going to get off of this, you know, calamity train, uh, we're going to have to make some really different decisions about what's important. 
in our communities, in our lives. We're going to have to bring back uh, rites of passage, right? Initiating ourselves, dying to this old identity of the specialized high technology lifestyle and reinitiating ourselves through our communities into something different. I don't know what it is. I mean, I know what it is for me, but each of us has to look into the depths of the truth that I, I believe we all know. If we really sit with the truth of our actions and our values and our standards and our decision-making processes and uh, hold that up to the mirror of the planets and what's happening with the planets, I think we all know that none of us are living sustainable lifestyles. None of us. And the work that we have to do to take apart all these systems we've put in place that have uh, created the situation we're in is is massive. It's a huge undertaking. It's something that I don't think my generation is going to see the results of. Maybe, you know, my nieces and nephews will get to see it. And also, we're kind of leaving it up to that next generation to figure it out. Uh, I'd, I'd feel like, and psychologically, I don't know if I have what it takes to fully reinvent myself to that degree. There's so many, so many years and decades of reinforced behaviors and patterns and ways of thinking and indoctrination. I, I don't know if there's enough time to get it all out of my head to really fully kill that identity, to have that ritual death entirely. You know, there's so many iterations I've done of re-identifying myself and taking on new ways of being and the constant struggle of incorporation, right? I'm, I'm struggling all the time to keep those new ways intact, to pursue them going forward. But to be honest, even after years and years, they're still uncomfortable. They're still difficult. They're still scary. They still feel somewhat foreign to me. And that makes me so sad. Because in my mind, in my heart, I do, I do, I embrace that more uh, basic, natural, in harmony living. It's it's something I feel so so enthusiastic about, but it seems so far away so many times. But in, in the same way that specialization um, generationally started to move the youth away from that general connection to nature, to that right living, um, you know on the planets with all the resources, uh, we, our generation, can be slowly begin to move it back the other way. You know, so just increment by increment. Maybe it's going to take 10 generations. I don't know. But if I'm able to move the needle back a little closer to center, just a little bit, and to let my uh, choices and the way that I am, you know, challenge myself to to bring in a more um, harmonious uh, human experience living on the planets have an effect and an influence on the youth that I have access to, then that next generation is even closer to returning back to that more holistic, generalized uh, connection to, to nature, to this planet, to our identity as a, as a species who's uh, completely dependent and reliant on this planet for everything. There's that quote that's often attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't know if it's um, actually his quote or not, and I don't have it verbatim, but it goes something like this. Um, you know, the, the mindset that created the problem cannot also be the same mindset that solves a problem. You know, it's a paradigm situation. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I firmly believe that we, we can't, we're not going to get to maintain the lifestyles that we're all living and pursue the things we all desire to pursue and also solve the climate change issue. We're just not. So you can be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. And being part of the solution requires a radical paradigm shift. And one of the best ways to get a radical paradigm shift is to engage yourself in a rite of passage, to have a ritual death and a ritual rebirth to transform who you are, which this then transforms how you see the world. This isn't meant to be a, a promotional uh, podcast for uh, the Compass program in Rising Man. Um, and it's not the only one out there. There's a lot of different organizations that, off, that offer some kind of rite of passage uh, transformational program. You know, most often it's some kind of time spent out in nature, solo, with no food, you know, fasting, crying for a vision, 
reinventing oneself, reinventing your paradigms, reinventing your values, reinventing what you're willing to take a stand for with your your one life, your your short 70 to 100 years that you have on this planet. What will your legacy be? You know, how will your nieces and nephews talk about you? How will your sons and daughters talk about you? And again, this isn't uh, meant to guilt you into giving up everything in your life, becoming a monk or starting some new corporation that's, you know, bent on saving the world with technology. It really just means, what are you going to start doing tomorrow? What are you going to start doing tomorrow? Are you going to um, get yourself out in nature? Because that's what it takes. If you're going to build a reconnection to nature to remember your own nature connection, that you are nature, uh, it just means you've got to spend time. It's just like any other relationship. You've got to put in the time. And it's going to feel foreign. might feel a little awkward. It might feel a little scary because it just feels like, what am I doing? It feels like I'm doing nothing. But I trust that it's, it's doing everything. Putting yourself in nature, letting nature see you, uh, telling nature that, you're here for it. Yeah, I'm talking about talking to trees, talking to rocks, laying on the grass, cloud watching, um, learning some basic skills, you know, how to make fire, how to tan a hide, how to make cordage, how to forage for food, what's edible in your backyard or the local park. These are all like easy, low-hanging fruits. All they require is your willingness to spend the time and, you know, sometimes a little money if you're taking a workshop to get some training from somebody. But not even that. Most times it just, it just means the time. That you take the time that you would normally spend specializing and give it back to nature. Spending time in nature will change you. It'll be a change for good. Deep down inside, you already know that. You already know that. What have you got to lose besides your home planet? Do it for yourself. Do it for your loved ones. Do it for the next generations. I fully believe that by engaging deeply with nature and reconnecting deeply to nature and listening to nature, letting our imagination and our creativity uh, synergize with the general eminence, uh, sentience of the life within nature, uh, that's where the genius is going to come from. That's where the genius is going to come from. The technologies we have that are the most destructive to nature are coming from people who have lost their connection to nature entirely. You know, really, it's the same reason why we don't eat our pets, right? So just bear with me on this one. <laughs> uh, you know, here in the States, at least, like we don't eat dogs or cats. Those, you know, those are things that we culturally assign um, as pets, something we care about, something in general, like people care about dogs in general. Uh, we don't look at them as food. We instead spend lots of time building relationship with them, um, creating companionship with them, receiving affection from them and giving affection to them. It'd be untenable to think about having a pet dog and then one night deciding to eat it for dinner. You know, but there are cultures who do eat dogs. It is a food source. So, um, and contrary to that, you know, pigs, cows, chickens, um, we don't ever think really about having relationships with those animals, even though pigs are smarter than dogs. That's been scientifically proven. They're, they're really brilliant animals. Uh, but because culturally we've not been taught to value them as, as pets, as something worthy of receiving our, you know, human affection and companionship and, and feelings, um, we don't. And instead, we we eat them, and the way that we kill them is horrendous. If you've you know ever read anything about what happens in slaughterhouses, it's terrible, 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 terrible. So it's the same with nature. You know, we can we're kind of taught to treat nature sort of like cows and pigs. It's just a resource. It's something we use. Uh, we just take from it wherever we want, do whatever we want with it. We cut off the tops of mountains. We pollute the waters. Um, we bury our toxic waste in holes in the grounds. We don't treat it like 
we do our pet dogs. We don't build a relationship with it. That's just not what we've been taught. But I believe it's what we should do. We really need to look at nature the way we look at, you know, the way we extend ourselves, our humanity to our pets is the same way we need to be extending our humanity to nature. I don't know, is that too out there? Yeah, you know, from this side of the paradigm, it probably is to many ears. It's just like, what? That just sounds outrageous. But through a transformed paradigm, it makes the most sense. Like from where I'm standing, it's like, I can't not do that. It's important. I have such a high value on staying connected to nature. It really informs so many of my decision-making processes. And a lot of those decisions uh, I don't want to make. They're inconvenient. They're expensive. They take more time. They, um, they take me out of the social picture a lot of the times. But I make them because I love nature the way I love my human people, the way I love my pets. You know, as a human, we have that ability to extend our humanity to anything we choose. Our imagination, our creativity, our sense of soul, our, our sense of connectivity, just, just the fact that we know we can connect and receive uh, emotional you know, feedback from virtually anything we put our attention on. That's a huge gift. And we can turn it to, to anything. So I invite you to, to begin experimenting with how are you going to turn that to nature? How are you going to bring yourself to nature, to return yourself back to your source? Because that's what Earth is. Earth made you. Earth is making you every day. And that's the truth. All right, y'all, that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Hope you got something out of it. And if you did, you know, let us know. Hit the boards, share your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Also, of course, subscribe to the podcast on the podcast app of your choice. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. And leaving us a rating and a review on any of those platforms, and particularly iTunes, really helps just get this, you know, the message that Rising Man carries out in front of more people. So if you like what you're hearing and you find it useful and helpful and inspiring, you can help other men get that too by just taking that extra minute to say a good word on those review boards. Major props to the Rising Man Power Team. That is Sean, Mark, Julian, Rowan, Ryan, and Kyle. They're killing it every time. And especially this time with this particular podcast, we had some technical difficulties with the power outage. These guys didn't really get the material to the, to the last minute. So burning some midnight oil to make this one get out on time. And I just really want to give them extra appreciation for uh, doing what it takes. So thanks guys. So that's it until next time. I'm Sean Barry and find out about who you are inside by getting outside. <laughs>